You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 303 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. I'm sitting here freezing because the energy companies have raised my energy bill with 300%. So I'm trying to uh, keep the costs down. Luckily I have a fireplace. Today we're going to talk about trees with director Paul Johnson. His documentary Last of the Ancient Rainforests is a visually stunning and immersive experience among some of the world's oldest trees and the activists who have a powerful emotional connection to them. They raise the profound question, is it time to protect the last of the ancient rainforests in the same way we protect endangered animals? So thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me. So can you tell a bit about who you are and and what you do? So my name is Paul Johnson, and I am a documentary film director and broadcast uh, journalist. Um, I've been doing news and news reporting, um, mostly in in what you might call the the so-called mainstream media um, for a, a long time. Uh, a lot of that work for um, one of the main news networks uh, in Canada. Um, I was a foreign correspondent for many years, and I worked in Washington, D.C., and Beijing, various places around the world. And at the same time, I have also been uh, producing and releasing my own documentary films on a variety of different topics. And um, the latest film, and the one that uh, I guess caught your attention, is Last of the Ancient Rainforest, which is this story about what has been happening here on the west coast of North America to one of the world's most magnificent forests, often overlooked, but uh, staggeringly beautiful and productive, and um, what's happened to it and and what the future of it is. Are there any indigenous people in that area? Yes, there are quite a few indigenous people in this part of the world. And um, that's a part of this story. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things that's going on here uh, in Western Canada is that the the numbers of uh, intact indigenous nations um, is quite high. If you go from, say, the border of Canada and the U.S. up to Alaska, and you were to you know, fly an airplane uh, north, uh, you would pass over literally dozens of different um, indigenous nations uh, that in many cases have their own language, a distinct language from some of the others, have uh, slightly different cultures, uh, different types of homes and uh, construction that they use. And in some places, this is the part of the world where you see these beautiful and iconic uh, totem poles being built. And part of the story here is that if you think about how European colonialism of North America happened, it, it began in the east coast of the United States and Canada. 
And in the early 17th century, when we saw the first waves of settlers coming from Europe, and the big waves of settlers really didn't reach the West Coast here until the second half of the 19th century. So only about you know, less than 200 years ago, about 150 years in some cases. So th this film was actually made in an area, and I'm living in an area, where it, the indigenous nations were actually still flourishing, mostly in their pristine state, up until fairly recently in history. So we see a lot of effects still from colonialism on the people who are still there. Uh, but we still have a lot of them here, and it enriches our culture, and uh, uh, it's a big part of the debate about what's going on with these forests. Does that area have those large trees? This area has some of the biggest trees in the world, and um, uh, for, for some reason this has really sort of fallen off the radar screen in the past couple of decades when people talk about conservation of forests, and, and in particular rainforests, and... Um, uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, the fact that when we think of rainforests, we often think of tropical rainforests, the, the Amazon rainforest, the Congo Basin in Africa, um, the Southeast Asian forests in Borneo, for instance. And those are magnificent forests in their own right, and they have a lot of charismatic uh, attributes to them in terms of the animals and the plants that are there and the colors. And uh, they're really remarkable in their own way. But the kind of forest that we have here and that this film is about is what's known as the temperate rainforest. And temperate rainforests are globally actually quite rare. Um, you've got some temperate rainforest uh, down in South America on the coast of Chile. You have a little bit on the, um, uh, on the far eastern uh, coast of Russia. Uh, and I think you even have some parts of temperate rainforest in Scandinavia. But nothing really compares in terms of temperate rainforest to the rainforest on the west coast of North America, which stretches basically from just north of San Francisco, so northern California, all the way up the coast through California, Oregon, Washington State, then the province of British Columbia in Canada, which is vast, and all the way up to the southern portion of Alaska, where it kind of peters out as things get cold. And the temperate rainforest is really fueled by the moisture that comes off of the Pacific Ocean. And most of the temperate rainforest exists in this strip that's really only about 50 to 100 kilometers wide. Um, if you know anything about the geography of the west coast of, uh, of North America, uh, there's a mountain range called the Cascade Mountains that also starts in about northern California and goes up to about the southern reaches of Alaska. And um, Vancouver, for instance, is right in the middle of the Cascade Mountains. So is Seattle. And on the eastern side of the Cascades, it's much drier. And that's because most of the moisture gets dropped in this wet coastal zone. And what this allows for, to answer your question about the size of trees, is enormous trees growing in this region. Trees that can reach 300 feet in height. Trees that are in some cases 12 feet 
in diameter at their base. And I'm sorry I'm not giving you this to you in metric. I should, but I think you'll be able to get the picture. The kinds of trees that are here that grow to these immense heights are Sitka spruce, Douglas fir, um, cypresses, uh, western red cedar. These trees can become enormous and they can become very, very old. And in actual fact, people think that the tropical rainforests of the world are the most productive. They're very productive in terms of what they can generate in terms of biomass per hectare. But it's actually the temperate rainforests of the world, and specifically the temperate rainforests uh, here on the west coast of North America, that actually can generate the most biomass per hectare of any kind of forest in the world. So this enables the creation of these enormous trees. Also, because it's so wet here most of the year, if you know anything about Seattle, Washington, or Vancouver, British Columbia, you know it rains a lot here. And the moisture suppresses natural forest fires. Uh, in many cases, there's just no history of forest fires happening at all in some of these places. So in the absence of land clearing forest fires, you can get very, very old trees. Uh, some of the oldest, well, the oldest trees in Canada grow in this zone. These are yellow cedars, and you'll see them profiled in the film. Um, some of these trees are 2,000 years old. It's not uncommon for some of the younger trees to be at least 1,000 years old. So what we're talking about here are, are literally ancient trees that are still alive. And um, that was one of the inspirations to make this film to explore the reverence that some people have for these ancient living beings and a desire to protect them from the industrial logging uh, that continues to happen in this part of the world. I've been to the Sequoia National Park. I don't know if that's part of this uh, rainforest you were talking about. It is. And the Sequoias, um, the redwoods, um, live in the southern part of the coastal temperate rainforest. They too are some of the largest trees that you will see anywhere in the world. And uh, sadly, the story of the sequoias and the redwoods, um, as is the case with the enormous trees that you see further up north um, in the coastal temperate rainforest, most of the biggest, oldest trees, the vast majority of them, are long gone, as are the ecosystems that they form. So the fact that you were able to get out here and see some of them um, is a good thing. Some are protected in national parks, state parks, provincial parks, but industrial logging has been going on here for about 150 years. And the biggest and the best of those trees are long gone. And if you've seen the sequoias, I mean, you know something about the scope of these trees. I mean, they're basically superstructures is what they are, living superstructures. And I mean, these trees were so big that in the early history of the logging in British Columbia, and British Columbia has by far the biggest portion of this coastal temperate rainforest, it was very common that they would cut down trees and you would then take them out of the forest on a logging truck to take it to the sawmill to mill it. And 
the trucks would only be able to carry one tree at a time because these trees were so enormous. I mean, if you think about a picture of a logging truck, most logging trucks, they would be loaded up with a dozen, two dozen trees fit on the chassis of a logging truck. But for a long time, you would take just one tree because they were so massive. And most of those trees are gone now. What I found interesting when I went there was that I was surprised to see that or to feel actually that the the bark was soft because when you look at pictures it looks like it's big so it must be really hard but it it's more like uh, felt more like uh, human skin like soft uh, it's really intriguing isn't it yes to um to spend time around these trees to smell them to touch them to breathe the oxygen that they're producing and um I mean, the bark is a living part of these trees. Uh, the bark is part of the circulatory system of these trees. Um, without their bark, they cannot live. Um, in fact, one method of uh, clearing trees in North America, um, I mean, this goes back more than a century, uh, was when settlers were scouting out a new part of North America and they wanted to cut down the trees, uh, they realized that if they didn't need that to be on that land, right away, an easy thing to do was to take a loop of barbed wire, wrap it around the tree, and tighten it so that it would cut through the bark, basically strangling the tree. And and then they would leave it and they would go back and they would come back in a few years and the tree would be dead and would be much easier to knock down. That was something that you could do. So yeah, when you're touching the bark of a tree, um, you're actually touching a, a living structure that is beautiful in its own right. I always imagined, especially when I was there, that it must have been amazing for, for the first humans who wandered into that area, suddenly seeing these huge trees. It must have looked like some sort of magical land. Absolutely. Well, the first humans we know that came into the coastal temperate rainforest um, were the first nations who came down, um, crossed the Bering Strait from Eurasia and came down and started to populate the west coast of uh of North America. And uh, the nations that are in this area literally arrived in a Garden of Eden-like setting, um, a, a paradisical uh, climactic zone. Um, you know, one of the words that is used to describe this forest is the temperate rainforest. Temperate meaning, you know, this part of the world generally doesn't get too hot, generally doesn't get too cold. Um, we don't have the kinds of Arctic temperatures that you would see in the interior of Canada or in the northern parts of Sweden, for instance. So what they found first was this incredible primeval forest with giant trees supporting a vast and complex and rich ecosystem of bushes that supplied them with innumerable different types of berries uh, that were edible, and roots that they could eat, plus, of course, the marine resources that were there, um, the immense salmon runs that come into the creeks uh, and rivers along this coast. And basically, they could sustain themselves very well uh, just through foraging in the forests and, uh, and fishing and collecting the salmon. And they developed a very complex culture uh, based off of that. 
When the first Europeans came, they too were overwhelmed by the size and the scope and the immensity of this forest. And this is where things really went off the rails in terms of the management of this forest. And it started with, here in British Columbia, a lot of the earlier uh, explorers were Scottish. And when they got here and they saw these forests, of course, what they saw uh, was vast economic and business potential to be exploited. And so they started cutting down the trees. And the size and the scope of the forest was really misleading because for the first European settlers who came here, really up until just the past 40 years or so, there was this belief that this was an endless resource that could be exploited endlessly. That the coastal forests of British Columbia that produced these massive trees were so vast that we would never run out of them. So industrial logging has happened on a scale in the Canadian province of British Columbia, really like in no other part of the world. I know there's a lot of concern for what's going on in the Amazon rainforest, and it is concerning, but conservationists who follow the numbers are frequently pointing out now that the industrial clear-cut logging that's been taking place in British Columbia actually has been the most disruptive to this ecosystem of any kind of logging that's happened anywhere in the world. As one of the conservationists in my film pointed out, Saul Arbes, um, this has amounted to one of the world's biggest industrial projects anywhere, anytime, the logging of the forests of British Columbia. I invite you to do this if, if you want to learn about the scope of, of what happened. Uh, if you're curious and you like to look at maps, just pull up a Google map, spin it over to the coast of British Columbia, Canada, zoom in a bit, and click on the satellite view so you can see the actual the pictures from space. You will be startled to see on places like Vancouver Island and the coast that's north of Vancouver, what you will see is basically a checkerboard. You will not see an intact forest anymore, not anything close to an intact forest. You will see a forest that has been intensively logged for more than 100 years, and in some cases has arguably been logged out. And in fact, those pictures might even be deceiving because among the green portions that you will see amidst the brown clear cuts that are very obvious, uh, many of those green portions are areas that were replanted after they'd been clear cut. So this is what's happened since European discovery of these forests, is a, a sense that we had an inexhaustible resource, and sure enough, it took about 150 years, and now there's hardly any of it left. Is it just logging to get the wood, or are they uh, logging to clear clear the area so they can like uh, make a mine or frack or do something else it's purely logging for the wood products is what it is and this is part of the problem for those who are now saying that we've logged too much of the ancient forest already is that in the coastal temperate rainforest um, the old growth trees are the ones that are uh, 
the most valuable. They're the ones that are most highly sought after for their wood properties, for use in construction, uh, for structural timber, in the case of Douglas fir. I mean, you know, I don't know what the, the figure is, but a substantial percentage of all of the homes that have been built across North America, uh, the wood frames are Douglas fir wood from these massive trees that comes from the coastal temperate rainforest here. That's how much wood they got out of it. Uh, there are homes in Florida that are built with this wood. There are homes in Texas, homes in Ontario. So this wood is valuable, and that's been the primary reason uh, for cutting it down. The cedar is valuable. Cedar is, is highly sought after for uh, roofing material, for water-resistant uh, uses outside, decks, all kinds of things. Cedar is a beautiful wood. I mean, they're, they're all beautiful in their own way. So the vast majority of the forest has been cut down for milling it into lumber. Um, a small portion, mostly the sawdust uh, that is generated from the milling process, also would go into uh, paper mills in the pulp and paper industry. There used to be many pulp mills up and down the coast of British Columbia. There are many fewer now, um, mostly because of automation, but also because they're having a hard time finding new wood fiber to put into it because of the decline of available timber. But yeah, to answer your question, they're not clearing these forests here to farm them, uh, to mine, to you know make cities. Um, it's all to be used in construction. So what do you think the future holds? Uh, are there any positive signs that uh, this will be halted? This is the big question, and this is really... Uh, one of the things that's at the core of this of my film, Last of the Ancient Rainforest, um, the numbers about what is left of the original forest are in dispute. Um, conservationists give out a figure, and then the industry comes back and says, no, that's not correct, and you're counting wrong, blah, blah, blah. But conservationists will say that, based on their studies, only about 3% of the original ancient coastal forest here remains, that the rest has all been cut down, or what you're seeing growing is replanted trees, which is by no means anything close to what an original forest was. Industry says that's too low and that's alarmist, and in fact the number of, uh, the, the amount of original forest is higher than that, and they'll give various different figures, but none are higher than 10%. So we're talking about, let's say, somewhere between 3 and 10%, roughly, of what is left. So if it took us 150 years to get to between 3 and 10% uh, only remaining, this clearly shows that it's not sustainable going forward at this point because we only have a few years left if they continue to cut it. They will be out of everything that is not already protected and in some kind of a park. And some of it is protected and in parks. But the biggest and the best, again, is long gone. So what the conservation movement on the west coast of Canada is calling for is for an immediate ban on logging of old growth ancient forests. To basically say, if you've got trees and you've, that are over 500 years old, they need to be left alone. The forest needs to be left alone to regenerate. That old trees 
ancient trees, up to and including some of these yellow cedars that can be 2,000 years old, that they have an intrinsic value unto themselves, to the planet, that is worth more than what they can be sold for as lumber and boards, and that they need to be protected. And as I speak now, they are blocking logging roads on Vancouver Island. They are lobbying the government and they're organizing to try to get the government to ban old growth logging. And they are succeeding in some ways. But the larger picture is that here in the province of British Columbia, Canada, the logging industry has been the single biggest part of the economy for a very long time. It's financially very powerful, and they have a lot of political clout with the leaders here. And they own tree farm licenses, which is the right to cut down these trees in some of these ancient forests. And they paid money for these. They have a business model that is based on harvesting these, on cutting down these trees. And they want to return on their investment. And uh, the government is very open and very persuaded by that. And they make the argument that there are a lot of jobs connected to this, which is true, although the number of jobs is declining. Uh, so we have this controversy out here between conservationists who are saying, we need to preserve everything that we have left now. And a very powerful logging industry that's saying, whoa, 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 um, there are jobs and profits that are on the line here. And you can't put all of these into protection or we'll be out of business and that'll be bad for a lot of people. And the government is caught in this balancing act here. Um, so the outcome is unclear at this point. Um, what is going to happen. But one thing is for certain, the number of trees and the number of big trees is constantly dwindling. So the future of this industry is going to look very different, whether that's because conservationists succeed in persuading the government to protect more of these trees, or industry goes and cuts down these trees, and then there aren't any trees to cut down anymore. I don't know if you brought this up in your documentary, but uh, there's been a lot of research in the last decade regarding the intelligence of trees and how they could be conscious more than we, we think and uh, that they move, but it happens so slow we don't see it and uh, how they are connected to the other trees, you know, underground. Yes, um, this is something that I explore in the film and this is part of what motivated me because I really wanted to explore... I wanted to tell the story of what happened to this forest, one of the world's most spectacular forests. But I also wanted to explore what is going on with the people who are inspired to fight to save them, some of whom are doing it through activism and lobbying government, others who, as you see in the film, are willing to go up onto logging roads here and chain themselves to holes they've dug in the ground and to block the logging trucks from getting in and to get arrested for doing so and disrupt their lives. What is this power? What is the power of these forests to motivate people? And a lot of it is precisely what you just said, is a growing awareness that there is, some, there is a lot more to these trees and the ecosystems that they are a part 
than we have ever known. And in fact, there's probably a lot more that we have yet to find out about them. And a lot of this goes back to the work that a scientist in uh, Vancouver did uh, a number of years ago. Uh, this was a forestry, uh, uh, a professor of forestry at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Her name is Suzanne Simard. And she had a hunch that there was some kind of signaling mechanism going on in forests between trees, that there was some kind of almost nervous system that was not yet understood in trees. And she proved that this is, in case, uh, a fact and that this is what's going on. And what she did was she used um, radioisotope gases that she could pass into the trees and then track the movement of uh, these radioisotopes. And, and what she found was that trees are, in fact, talking to one another and are communicating and are sharing resources where one is lacking water, where one is lacking sugars. Um, they're communicating through their root systems, and the mediation of this communication in the root system is um, fungal networks, mycorrhizal fungal networks that are in the ground that interface with the roots and connect trees of the same species and trees of different species. And this was a staggering development in the understanding of what's going on in trees. I mean, I really believe that what Suzanne Samard figured out, that did to forest ecology what Einstein's theory of special relativity did to physics when it came out. It, it upended what we think about this part of the world and this part of the universe. Because suddenly we're going from this argument where forest companies would say, yeah, we're going to clear cut this forest, but that's not a problem because we will replant it and you'll get a forest back. Well, what Suzanne Samard showed was that there is an incredible complexity that lies beneath there that cannot be just restored by planting a bunch of seedlings and watching them grow over a couple of decades. That this complexity that is in the ground has evolved over many thousands of years. And there are properties and there are attributes to it that we don't even know. And yes, you're right. This is a kind of nervous system. This is an awareness. It's a form of intelligence. And here's a further kind of a mind-boggling thing to think about. Because we don't regularly or at all see forest fires here in the coastal temperate rainforest, uh, we don't see the forest burning down. This forest has existed in this state since the glaciers in this region retreated about 30,000 years ago. So if you take the trees and their root networks, which are talking to one another, and all of the other plants that are involved in that, and you think of this not just as a collection of different plants, but as a kind of a superorganism unto itself, a kind of meta-being, these are actually forms of intelligence that are truly ancient, that go back 30,000 years. This is a 30,000-year-old thinking, feeling being, is one way of looking at it. 
And that's how these activists are motivated because they see the forest in that way. They don't see it as a collection of a bunch of individual trees that can be cut down, sold for profit, replanted. They see it as a, as a cohesive being that cannot be replaced. It was also funny that uh, when they discovered those new discoveries regarding the trees, like, you know, when, when science understood that uh, the trees were talking and communicating, uh, the indigenous people said that, uh, well, we know that's what we've been saying for so long. They knew for many years that this was the case. Uh, and uh, But but uh, modern the modern world brushed them off, you know, as crazy people. Yes, they did. And we're only starting to now talk about indigenous ways of knowing that developed, again, also over many thousands of years. And whether this was based on intuition, but intuition that was forged over many thousands of years, um, that in itself can be and is, and is very likely as powerful a way of learning about something as any kind of Western empirical scientific research. Yeah, it's, it, of course, we as, uh, as Westerners, uh, we had to go through hundreds of years of cutting down the forests and then have a certified scientist like Suzanne Samard actually go out and demonstrate uh, through our scientific process, through these experiments. And it was only at that point that we said, aha, well, now we believe the indigenous people that there is awareness and they're doing this. And it, I mean, I think it shows that there are First, there's a vast amount of things that we still don't know, obviously, about the universe and certainly about living things and certainly about the way living things integrate together into an ecosystem. And there's also a lot we don't know about the intuitive processes by which indigenous people developed wisdom that was also based on thousands of years of survival in that ecosystem and actually living in this ecosystem in a much more integrated way. Um, and it should have been paid attention to, and people are starting to pay attention to it. I mean, what Samard found out, the mother tree philosophy as it's known, and that's the name of one of her books, it really points, I think, to the possibility that there is much greater knowledge about this, about the awareness of these ecosystems than we know already. Very likely that Samard's work is just the very beginning of this, which is also one of the motivating reasons to protect and conserve these ancient ecosystems where we still have them, because we still don't even know everything there is. We, we still don't even know a fraction of what there is to know about these forests before we cut them down. And uh, that's a reason uh, to save them in the view of the people who are out there. I did some uh, landscaping outside my house and there were a few aspen trees I had to remove, which which uh, was quite traumatic. Uh, but the aspen tree here is more like a weed. Uh, but of course, I left uh, the oak trees and the pine trees intact. Um, uh, so uh, uh, every tree is different. But I mean, I, I had a lot of problems getting rid of those trees anyway uh, 
I can't just Im- I can't imagine what it would be like to to cut down those big redwood trees. I mean, uh, uh, it's it's very strange to me that you wouldn't uh, pause and think before you did that. Uh, I mean, tree. I mean, you need to cut down trees uh, in a sense uh, if you do it in a in a in a um, conscious way because wood is re- is really an amazing material i mean if we took care of all the forests and and used the wood properly i mean not only can a tree live i mean there's trees in the sequoia uh, national park that's like 500 years before christ still alive today but even if you cut down a a normal tree and uh, the actual wood you make from it uh, can also last forever you know it's amazing how it's amazing how durable it is Wood is is a spectacular, beautiful, and life affirming material. There's no there's no other. You're right. I mean, there's no other material like wood. And you know, one interesting thing that is part of this debate, and um, you know, is that the people are saying in this film, when we have this clash between conservationists and industry in this part of the world. Um, the industry frequently says, you guys are, are anti-logging and you want to put us out of business. And that's actually not the case. What the activists who I profiled in Last of the Ancient Rainforest are saying, they're not saying they want to end all logging. They recognize what you just said, that we need wood. But what they're saying is we need to stop the logging of the last of the ancient forests, and we need to preserve them. In the same way that nobody would ever think of knocking down the pyramids of Egypt to sell the stones, right? I mean, that would be considered insane if somebody said, let's do that, because they are considered to be a value to not just Egypt, but to all the world. They have an incredible heritage value. They're a part of our history as a civilization, and they will never be touched. Um, the Taj Mahal in India, I'm sure a businessman could make money if he got permission to knock down the Taj Mahal to sell the bricks. People would pay for them, and you could make money doing that. But we would never do that because that's insane. And What these activists are saying now, in a country like Canada or in the United States, which are comparatively very young countries compared to the old world, we don't have Gothic cathedrals. We don't have pyramids. We don't have these ancient structures like you see in Rome or many places in Europe. But what we do have is these ancient forests. And we have structures here that are stupendous in their creation. You know, there's a tree that I tell the story of it um, in the film. It's called Big Lonely Doug, and it's a Douglas fir that was saved, actually, by a logger. And it's standing forlornly in the middle of a giant clear cut on Vancouver Island. It's kind of an icon now. And, you know, I went there to film Big Lonely Doug. And you stand at the base of Big Lonely Doug, and much like you were saying you were you were inspired by seeing the bark of the sequoias, you realize you are standing at the base of an ancient superstructure. 
a living superstructure. It's like standing at the base of an apartment building. It has grown up and it has evolved on its own and it's there. And it is as awe-inspiring as the Cathedral of Notre Dame, the castles of Scotland. And I think there's a growing sense that maybe that's how we need to see the last of these trees. These are ancient structures that we need to preserve, not because they have some dollar value in the current economy, but just because they are incredible beings that belong to the entire planet, and they have an intrinsic value in their own right. So what they're saying is, let's do that with the ancient trees. Let's continue to have, obviously, some kind of logging industry um, that is possibly more selective, that uses new technology to be less disruptive. And I think where they want to go is we don't do logging via clear-cutting anymore. And clear-cutting happens because clear-cutting has been the most economical way for the forest industry to get the trees. You go in and you cut it all down and you drag it out. You leave a lot of it as waste, which is frequently burned, but that's the cheapest way for them to do it. And they've argued that that's the only way that they can do it. And I think as we go forward, there will be the case to be made that we will have logging, but it won't be in the form of these massive clear cuts anymore. And it will be selective logging. And it will not be logging of these ancient structures, much as you wouldn't knock down the pyramids to make money off of them. I'm not sure if it's a part of the temperate rainforest, but it's very close by anyway in, in Oregon. It's also the largest living uh, organism on the whole planet, uh, this, uh, this fungi, uh, this big mushroom equivalent of, I think it like uh, almost 1400 soccer fields. I mean, these are, this is, you're right. I mean, and these are some of the most intriguing things that you think about when you, you know, get into researching these stories. You were talking about your Aspen. Well, Aspen is a similar thing too. When you see, when you had a bunch of Aspen trees growing in your yard, you didn't have a bunch of trees. You had, one, you had one organism because it's interconnected through its root network. And like you say, they grow like weeds. Um, aspens, there are aspen groves in the United States, I think in Utah or Colorado might be one of them, that is huge in its scope and size. And they can also grow to be literally ancient beings because they're continually sprouting up somewhere else. We see the same thing with fungal networks and forests. Um, a mycelium, a, a fungal network. We only see the mycelium and the evidence of it when it's in its fruiting reproductive phase in the form of mushrooms, which in the Northern Hemisphere usually sprout up in the fall. Those are sprouting up above ground so the spores can be spread. But most of the, the body of that organism is underground. And they can be massive. And they also live because they interact with other living things. They have no ability, they don't do photosynthesis. So where do they get their carbohydrates from? 
they get their carbohydrates from the trees whose roots they interface with. And in turn, they give back resources to the tree. And they also function as this kind of neurological network in the ecosystem. Um, I might be speaking a little bit out of line here, but I believe one of the things that Suzanne Samard showed was that through these fungal networks in the ground, trees will communicate with one another and send resources. And I believe she showed that a Douglas fir tree has the ability through this neural network to recognize its own offspring and to send resources to its own offspring. This is the mother tree concept, which, I mean, I don't know how you can't say then that this is not a form of awareness and that this is a type of intelligence. And it's connected through these underground systems. And we're only really starting to get a handle on these. Um, the size of these, the size of the fungal network you're talking about in Oregon, your aspen trees, the quaking aspens of the, of the western United States, um, they're fascinating, interesting things, and we have a lot still to learn from them. They often say that like, if you reincarnate, like maybe you start as a bug and then you move upwards and then finally you become a human. But I, I always think that like, in order to be reincarnated as, as a whale, or as a tree, you would be have to be more enlightened than a, a human because you would have to be at peace with yourself. I, I imagine, you know, a whale floating in the massive oceans, you know, or a tree just standing there for aeons, you know, you, you'd have to be in a special state of mind, you know, it's not like uh, your first reincarnation, you know, if you believe in that thing. Well, you know, that's interesting because... When you talk to some of the activists, like some of the people who were in Last of the Ancient Rainforests, and they talk about their connection with trees and going into ancient forests and being in there. And they talk about a sense of stillness and peace that imbues them as they're inside these forests that they say they are getting from the trees. And I think there's something to that. I haven't experienced it necessarily at the level that some of them have, but in the making of this film, I obviously spent a lot of time in the ancient forests of Western Canada, and there is a kind of deep peace and deep sense that you get from being in these forests that, you know, I feel like we get very disconnected from in our current way of living. I mean... You know, I've spent most of my life living in cities, flying around the world on jets, um, communicating through screens with people. And there's nothing really wrong with that way of life. But I think it's worth recognizing that it is out of balance with how we evolved. And how we evolved is as creatures who lived with, among and from trees, and we need them. And there is a deep power and a deep stillness that comes. Saul Arbes, one of the people who's in Last of the Ancient Rainforest, uh, says that when he has slept at the foot of ancient trees, they have communicated to him in dreams. 
A lot of people might say, oh, that's a kooky, you know, out there kind of a Terence McKenna kind of a thing to say. But, I mean, let's take him at his word for it. Um, and he got something from it. And I think this could be a new wave of relating to forests and trees. We see people talking more and recognizing this idea of forest breathing is something that is powerful and it is life affirming. And I think there's something to what you're saying. Uh, spend more time in, in forests. It's the cheapest, most underrated uh, form of adventure tourism that you're going to get is probably just going to a grove of trees. They don't have to be ancient trees. Just go to some trees that are in your neighborhood and spend a couple of hours there and see how you feel when you come out. No matter what else is going on in your life, those trees will they'll give you something. I mean, if you look at any culture in the whole world, even the, the Western culture, you can always find uh, trees in uh, in religion, in mythology, you know, the, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. But, uh, you know, the tree symbolism is everywhere. So it's obviously been always been important for humans uh, up until like the last few generations, maybe where we've been too busy with other things. I mean, even Christmas, you know, you bring in a tree, you know, so. Yes, yes. Um, there is a centrality to trees and the way they speak to humans on an archetypal level. And you're right. I mean, for many people in modern Western society, the Christmas ritual um, really has lost a lot of its power insofar as it's about the teachings of, of Christianity or the, of the Christian church. But one thing that people are still very excited about doing is getting the Christmas tree and putting it up and having it in their house. And I mean, we had a, a small Christmas tree up this year at our apartment in Vancouver and um, my wife put it up and I was gone. And when I came back and, you know, one day and it was there, you can smell it, you can experience it and it just does something to you and it's delightful. And There is some, there's a deeper power to that, that we ought to recognize more. And um, I think that if left unchecked, this movement of people who say they have experiences with these trees, combined with what scientists are finding out about what's actually going on with the trees, we're going to have more of a, of a recognition of the power of trees. And I mean, this is where the subtitle of my film It's um, Last of the Ancient Rainforests, The Emotional Connection to Trees. And the emotional connection to trees is, is probably the most powerful part of the film. If you watch the film, you will have an immersive experience and you'll feel as though you are taking a journey into an ancient rainforest. And um, many people will enjoy that. But it's the emotional connection that people have with the forests and with the trees that is most striking and is what I was hoping to explore and to uh, talk about. And I, I hope people find it interesting. So where can people watch this film? Um, the film is launched and is available uh, for your listeners worldwide as a uh, 
video on demand on Vimeo.com. You can go to Vimeo and search Last of the Ancient Rainforest. You can buy or you can rent the film. And um, soon to uh, be available on a number of other uh, streaming and uh, video platforms and uh, possibly on some television networks um, around the world. Um, but for now, um, you, can, you can watch it on Vimeo. You can see the trailer. And um, you can also see the trailer and you can see some outtakes of Last of the Ancient Rainforest um, for free on YouTube if you're interested. Great. It was very nice uh, talking to you. Alex, it was my pleasure, and um, I am a big fan of your work, and um, I look forward to um, uh, seeing what you do uh, with your future work. Apart from the generous donations I receive from my most dedicated listeners over at Patreon, I'm not really making any money from this podcast. So, if you want to support me, become a patron. Even a buck a month from a lot of people does make a difference. If you can't manage that, then please leave a nice review on iTunes or subscribe to my YouTube. All the links can be found on naturalbornalchemist.com. Now I need to get warm. I'm freezing. I'm going to light a fire and get under a blanket. And while I do that, why don't you listen to some banjo music? Freedom is in the mind. Freedom is in the mind.